This Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk includes highlights of my current affairs conversations with Dr. Robert Gates, former Secretary of Defense at the Council's February 14, 2017 International Educator of the Year Luncheon. You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. In our audience is Ambassador Kirk, and of course he served with great distinction as United States Trade Representative and spent an awful lot of time on airplanes negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which for all intents and purposes, it's dead in the water for the United States. What is the impact of our withdrawal, and particularly how does it play, if I may say, in China's hands? I think we have sort of yielded home field advantage to the Chinese in several ways, of which the TPP is the most recent. For example, when the Chinese set up their uh, Asian infrastructure bank, all of our allies joined it, and we declined to do so in the Obama administration. I think we should have gotten on board. I mean, we want China involved in these multilateral institutions. And the Chinese want to set up more and more of these things that exclude us. And so I think we should have joined it and said, you know, what can we do? I think we've missed an opportunity. You know, the Chinese really come down on us as, or their, one of their beefs is, that we're trying to contain them, we're trying to hold them back, hold them down. I think one of the initiatives we could have taken with the Chinese, and still could for that matter, at virtually no cost to ourselves, is to say, look, all these international financial institutions that we have today, or most of them, were designed at Bretton Woods after World War II. China was not a player in the global economy at that time. Mm -hmm. So how about we launch an initiative in China. So how do we update and renew, if you will, these international institutions that were created at Bretton Woods to reflect the importance of the second largest economy in the world, which was not a factor at all 60 years ago. So that's one of the things we could do. Clearly, the Chinese had to be quietly doing a lot of gambes when we killed the TPP. Now, to tell you the truth, I mean, people need to remember both presidential candidates came out against it. This was not just President Trump, and there's a lot of politics in the Congress against it. So even if the election had come out a different way, TPP might not have. In fact, probably wouldn't have. It's an easy win for China, because a lot of these countries are now looking around and saying, okay, what kind of relationships are we going to have? And are we going to just end up doing bilateral agreements with each of these countries? Or do we come up with some kind of a revised and try and reestablish some kind of multilateral initiative that we're confident better protects American interests and American jobs than perhaps TPP did based on the criticism of both the presidential candidates. But I think when it comes to trade, first of all, I don't believe you burn the house down. And I think they're getting to where they need to be politically on NAFTA in terms of both the Mexican president and the Canadian prime minister indicating a willingness 
to make some adjustments in NAFTA, and the president now talking about tweaking NAFTA and making some revisions, but not getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think NAFTA would be an easy win for the president, and because I think both our partners are prepared to make some changes in it. They realize with these years of experience that there are some imbalances, and we need to do something about that. We do have a gigantic trade imbalance with China. This last year it was $350 billion out of a $500 billion overall trade deficit. So there needs to be some adjustments in these things, but figuring out how you do it without disadvantaging American companies and, and the American economy is going to take some careful thought. And my hope is that as we move along, the people that the president has assigned responsibility for looking at these things will understand all of that and perhaps figure out ways to improve on some of the arrangements that we've had in the past. Richard Haas, who's president of the Council on Foreign Relations, will, will be here on Thursday. Few seats still available. But he did say just a few days ago and also wrote in his book, World in Disarray, that North Korea represents the greatest threat to our national security. Do you agree with that? And if so, what are our options? Well, I think that it is the most, probably the most challenging of the national security risks that we face. I like to say that we are now in our third generation of Kims, and with each successive generation, we have been swimming in a shallower and shallower part of the gene pool. So my concern is that he may not only be aggressive, but he may not be all that smart. And, you know, here's a guy who we believe was behind the sinking of the, the South Korean warship, the Chunun, behind the shelling of the South Korean islands a few years ago, the artillery shelling, sort of to prove his mettle to the North Korean military. This is a guy who, rumor or gossip has it, strapped his uncle to the front end of an anti-aircraft gun and executed him. So this guy having a road mobile intercontinental ballistic missile with a nuclear weapon on the top of it is a gigantic challenge, and that will almost certainly happen in the president's first term. And what role can China play? Well, the only solution to this problem, in my view, other than military, is through China. But I think we may need to come up with some and this is sort of heresy in a lot of circles, but we may need to come up with some diplomatic initiatives of our own that at least make the Chinese think twice and maybe the North. So maybe in exchange for the North dismantling their nuclear program again and stopping their ballistic missile program and agreeing to international inspections of all of that, and blowing up those facilities so that it would take a long time and a lot of money to rebuild. Maybe in exchange for all of that, we extend recognition. We sign a peace treaty. We declare we have no interest in taking over North Korea. And maybe we provide some kind of assistance. But sequencing, for me, would be the key because I want them to do all the things I just said they had to do before we do any of what we do. Partly because they've played this game with us for so many years. Yeah. I mean, they'll create a crisis and then they'll stand down in exchange for concessions from us. And we were discussing this one time during the Obama administration and I just said, I ain't buying that horse again. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pay for that same horse twice. But I think 
The problem is the Chinese are more worried about a collapse in North Korea than they are anything else. They are more worried about that than they are North Korea having nuclear-armed ICBMs. And until we can figure out a way to allay that concern, and I, I at one point had a very candid conversation with my Chinese counterpart. I don't think any American Secretary of Defense ever said anything like this. I said basically, look, if something happens in North Korea, I want you to go in and take over their nuclear weapons and their nuclear facilities. I don't want them, I don't need them, but I sure as hell don't want anybody else to have them. And so can we begin to have a dialogue about that? Neither of us wants North Korea to collapse, but what do we do if, and so on. And I kind of just laid this stuff all out to him in a private meeting, and at the end of it, he looks at me and he says, thank you for your views on North Korea. <laughs> and I think that's about where we are five years later in our dialogue with China on North Korea. We have time for just probably one more question, and I'd like to ask you to comment on the status of the United States military, the readiness. There's an article that appeared yesterday, military chiefs warn of force readiness struggles, and you've given a, a lot of thought about this. We've talked before about the problems with sequestration. What would you advise that the president present when he gives the budget in sometime before April? Well, there may be a dumber way to cut the federal budget than sequestration, but I can't think of it. Cuts the most important thing you do as much as the least important thing you do, and across the entire government. And it's just crazy. And what's worse, the Defense Department today accounts for about 15 to 16 percent of the federal budget. And why the Republicans in Congress would agree to have the Defense Department pay 50 percent of the cut in sequestration when defense is only 15 or 16 percent of the budget, I will never understand. But sequestration and continuing resolutions have led to complete chaos in the budgeting process because nobody knows how much money they're going to have, not just next year, but sometimes next month. And under continuing resolutions, you can't start any new program. You can't add to any program in a significant way. You can't react to new challenges because you are not allowed to do that. And if I want to reprogram money, anything above $10 million, I've got to go get the agreement of four congressional committees. And so I think it has hurt readiness. Our stockpiles are low. I think you may have seen the articles in the newspaper, something like half to two-thirds of marine aviation is not flying because of maintenance issues and the difficulty of getting spare parts and so on. And so I think General Mattis's first priority will be how do we improve our readiness and then how do we rebuild the numbers in some of the services and then the third piece of it is obviously new technologies. I became Secretary of Defense just over 10 years ago. Only one year since then has the Department of Defense begun a fiscal year with an enacted appropriation. Only once in 10 years. And we have gone with continuing resolutions for anything from a couple of months up to a year. And this is just madness in terms of efficiency and predictability and knowing what you're going to be able to do two years or three years out in terms of these massive programs. I used to tell both the director of OMB and the Congress, I said, you're expecting me to steer this 
biggest oil tanker container ship in the history of the world like it's a skiff, and it doesn't turn that fast. And so my hope is that the first initiative of the administration will be to just get rid of sequestration, get back to regular order of business where they actually have to make tough decisions on, and choices on what's important and what's not so important, and then begin to get budgets passed by the Congress before the end of the fiscal year. Dr. Gates, I want to thank you for being with us, for honoring our Teacher of the Year, for being such a good friend of the World Affairs Council. You already have the tie. So what we've done is we have purchased several copies of Dr. Gates' book, A Passion for Leadership, and we're going to be giving them to the junior WACs that are participants. And since you have the tie, excuse me, let me find the scarf over here. Here we go. <laughs> I'd like to give you the official World Affairs Council scarf for Mrs. Gates. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Bobby. Oh, it's a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.